Welcome to Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. In this episode, that month is October of 1968. My name is Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Rob, this is a pretty big month for Marvel Comics. I agree. Yeah, uh, we have uh, there's a a major team of characters from the Marvel Cinematic Universe making uh, its comics debut, which is a little different. Yeah, it doesn't quite line up with what we've seen on the screen. Um, we also have uh, Spider-Man getting involved in a story that is ripped from the headlines. Um, we journey into the mystery of what Thor was up to before lame Dr. Blake found that walking stick in the cave. Uh, and then we get the debut of a major Avengers villain. Um, <laughs> and uh, what might be the most upsetting cliffhanger in Marvel history to date. Yeah, I'm I'm still scarred, uh, freshly scarred by this issue. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, so we, we have some some big stuff to talk about here um, and some traumatic stuff. So let's spread the pain around a little bit <laughs> um, and introduce our uh, our guest for this week. She's the proprietrix of our very favorite comic store, Books with Pictures in Portland, Oregon. And as of like a month or two, she is a board member of Comics Pro, the comics professional retail organization. Katie Pride, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Hi, guys. I'm super glad to be here. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, also, sorry that we had you read at least one of the issues that we had you read this week. <laughs> I, I did open it up and think to myself, oh, it's that one. Yeah. I don't know them by the numbers necessarily, but once I, I opened it, I was like, Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's other stuff that uh, doesn't leave quite so much of a bad taste. Uh, so that will be fun anyway. Um, and then, you know, we'll just we'll all get through the other thing together. So, uh, Katie, uh, as you know, we have referenced your store many times on the podcast. Um, but assuming this is someone's first episode, uh, assuming they are somehow not listening just because you're on the show this week. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Books with Pictures and what makes it so unique? Sure. So Books with Pictures is a comic book store in Portland, Oregon. We're in the southeast quadrant of the city on Southeast Division Street. And uh, we are coming up on our fifth anniversary, which feels pretty solid. Um, we focus on being a new reader-friendly women-friendly, queer-friendly, kid-friendly, um, and 
aggressively inclusive in our content. So uh, while we definitely carry sort of mainline books from DC, Marvel, Image, uh, we make a point of having things on the shelves that reflect all of our customers uh, in terms of protagonists and creators. So we make sure that we have lots of books with Black folks, Asian folks, uh, people with disabilities, Native American people, um, lots and lots of queer content. Um, it's definitely a sort of special focus of mine and uh, my manager, Nick's. And um, yeah, we're sort of definitely focused on um, getting you the comics that you love and also helping you stretch those boundaries a little bit if you've reading, been reading a long time or helping you find something that is exciting to you, no matter who you are, if you're just getting started. Yeah, I was just in there today uh, with my soon-to-be eight-year-old son. It's always a treat to bring him in there um, where he appreciates all of your hard work uh, and then just asks you if you have anything that's based on Minecraft or contains a lot of mushrooms in it. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, guess that's, that's inclusive that's to a degree. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that I am now a grown-up that Jack likes. Like he could, he'll come in and is like at ease and wants to ask me things, even though mostly what he wants to ask is which books I have with Minecraft in them. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and you are a newly minted Comics Pro board member. Um, yeah. So what is Comics Pro? Why is it a big deal to serve on the board? So Comics Pro is the professional organization for uh, professional retailers. So we're a, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. We're a 501c6 organization. So a trade organization, not a nonprofit. Um, and we are a group that's dedicated to improvement for professional comics retailers. Um, what that, that really goes three ways. So uh, there is the sort of publisher-directed communication. So when publishers do something challenging, difficult, scary, um, there can be an organized voice of, uh, right now, Jen Hines is the president of Comics Pro. She is uh, the owner of um, two, three comic stores in Ontario. Um, and she calls them up. So Marvel announces that they're going to be distributing through Penguin Random House. And Jen was on the phone with Marvel and Penguin Random House within about an hour of that announcement coming to us and getting as many details as she can, doing that kind of advocacy work. Um, things like, um, gosh, a couple years ago, uh, DC promoted a wedding issue for the cat-bat marriage um, and it was honestly, not shockingly, a uh, uh, was a false advertisement. Uh, the wedding did not take place. Cat um, left bad at the altar, and we were all very sad. But additionally, uh, it meant that a lot of retailers who had ordered for the wedding were pretty ticked about their wedding orders and you know promotional wedding cakes and whatever else being a little awkward given the content of the issue once we found it um so there was a lot of push for like hey can we get some returnability on this mm, issue that we mm. maybe ordered under false pretense yeah um event uh, returnability was eventually granted i am not going to say whether or not it was comics pro yelling about it that made that happen but it certainly helps to have a group that yells about that sort of thing um, the second thing that Comics Pro does is um, internal education. 
So peer education, um, lots of workshops, conferences, um, retailers helping other retailers out in lots of ways, which is great um, because it is a weird thing to do. And there is only about 2000 people who do it like mm -hmm. in the whole world. So it helps to know each other. Um, so that networking point piece is key. And then the last thing is um, sort of publicity pushes. So local comic shop day uh, is a Comics Pro initiative that involves printing up a bunch of variant covers and other incentives from publishers and distributing them through Comics Pro shops. Um, so that kind of uh, customer outreach is also a Comics Pro gig. Gotcha. Yeah, I um, I think it's great. I, I don't know how long Comics Pro has been around as a, a trade organization, but I, I worked for my hometown comic book store um, in the 90s. Um, and the the owner of the shop remains one of my very best friends to this day. Um, but he would be the first to tell you that, you know, he got into running a store, not because he's a businessman, but because he loved comic books. And yeah. so I think having an organization like that to support you um it's not the worst idea in the world. Yeah, Comics Pro also runs a mentorship program, uh, which I used when I was getting started, uh, where you can uh, pay not the full membership fee, but like a partial membership fee and get access to their mentoring forums, where some experienced shop owners uh, sort of monitor for questions and help people out. Um, so uh, yeah, that's how I, I met a lot of people in the industry sort of starting out. That's great. And uh, I guess the last thing to to mention uh, before we get rolling um, is uh, so you were kind enough to let us have our, our first and, and so far only live show um, at Books with Pictures on Leap Day last year. Um, and then the pandemic hit and shut everything down for a year and change. So we're sorry about that. Um, but at the risk of tempting fate, dare we promise that we might do another live show at Books with Pictures before the end of this year? Oh, yes. One hundred percent. We should definitely do that. All right. All right. You heard it here first. Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, we've got some uh, some some great and it, at the very least, some interesting comics from uh, October 1968 to talk about. Uh, but first, as we always do, we're going to establish a little bit of historical context for what was going on in the world in October 1968. Uh, Rob, I chose this leadoff one specifically for you, so uh, enjoy. So on the 1st of October 1968, Night of the Living Dead premiered in the United States, originally titled Night of the Flesh Eaters and filmed in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The movie's first showing was in, this, in that city at the Fulton Theater at 8 p.m. with admission by invitation only. Um, and advertisement for the first week of showing said that if night of the living dead frightens you to death, you are covered for $50,000 <laughs> with the disclaimer that the guarantee was valid only for death from a heart attack only during performances, October 2nd through 8, 1968, and that the insurance company reserved the right to require a medical examination before the viewing. So, uh, yeah, the fi fine print really undercuts the drama of that promise. Um, but yeah, and I am yeah. wearing my day of the dead, uh, uh, promotional t-shirt as well for, you know, to honor this. I don't have an night of the living dead shirt that uh, doesn't, uh, that is still extant. Um, well, I know what to get yeah. you for our birthday then. <laughs> yeah. 
let's see. Uh, just a few days later, I don't think this is related in any way to the the first thing. Um, but uh, on the fifth of October, uh, the Troubles, uh, almost thirty years of violence between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, began when policemen of the Royal Ulster Constabulary at Derry attacked a group of demonstrators marching to protest against discrimination against the Roman Catholic minority. A cameraman for the RTE television network in neighboring Ireland filmed the scenes of constables attacking unarmed protesters with clubs, and the footage was shown on the BBC and then worldwide, and it took quite some time for things to settle down after that. On the 7th of October, the Motion Picture Association of America announced a new rating system for films distributed within the United States. This replaced the Hayes Production Code of 1934. So the NPAA announced four ratings. G was for general audiences of all ages. M was a warning that the content was for mature audiences. R was was restricted to require a parent to accompany a viewer under the age of 16. X prohibited theaters from admitting persons under 16 because of treatment of sex, violence, crime, or profanity. (laughs) profanity (laughs) all right yeah um and and speaking of movies on the 12th of october hugh jackman australian film and stage actor and wolverine in nine feature films and counting was born in sydney there you go that ties back into the last time we had katie on the episode (laughs) on on the podcast when we watched the x-men movie oh he's a beautiful beautiful man (laughs) <laughs> he really is. Did I tell you I have a a, a signed eight by ten of Hugh Jackman that's just in a in our uh, cat's. It's called the cat office because it works as both of those things a a cat <laughs> feeding room and an office. But yeah, uh, some photographer friend of an an actor friend had this photo and gave it to us because they knew I liked uh, comic books and so we're like. And he's just him all handsomely leaning on a fence in black and white. So it's just a beautiful photo that I see every day. <laughs> I I want to believe that you have, you know, like little votive candles set up around. <laughs> a little and, shrine. Yeah. Yeah. A little rosary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, on the 16th of October at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, African-American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists in a black power salute at the medal ceremony after winning the gold and bronze in the Olympic men's 200 meter race. It's a very famous photo. You've probably seen it. Um, after refusing to apologize, the two men were expelled from the team and sent home. So... <laughs> Again, that's where we're at in uh, America in 1968. Rob, do you have some Beatles by the Month news? I do. There's two pieces to this. On the 18th of October, uh, John Lennon was taken by London police to the Paddington Green Police Station on charges of possession of cannabis and obstructing a police search. It was the first time a Beatle had been arrested. Uh, (laughs) Lennon and Yoko Ono were arrested at Lennon's apartment in the Marlebone district and were released after posting bond to secure their appearance the next day in court. Um, just a few days later on the 25th, the, uh, John and Yoko announced that they were pregnant. Uh, so they were expecting a baby. They had no name for that baby yet. So, uh, I'll let you, I'll just let that wait till, uh, you know, 
a little a few months down the road we'll I would say that probably in. about nine months somewhere around nine I'm not sure how it works but uh <laughs> not a you're the only expert. person on this episode who has not reproduced yet so I, I understand and I took myself yeah. out of that game yeah <laughs> for everyone's <laughs> sake Rob I do want you to know that I I when I got my assignment for this month I I texted my mom uh, to ask her how she felt about October 1968. Um, and she wrote me a number of text messages and they were all about the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, uh, but, I mean, one like... of them was like half the sentence was about RFK and, and the other half was about the Beatles. And then she went <laughs> on about the Beatles for some time. Um, she was 12. So the Beatles were, you know, the whole world. Yeah. And I think they were, I mean, obviously from all of these history bits that we do, um, sometimes they're the, the happiest news going around in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh well, thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> set opening up. that window to, uh, yeah, this is infuriating. This is a thing I, I consider myself fairly well informed about the politics of the era, but I didn't know about this one. Uh, on the 22nd of October, uh, in an act that did not become public until 48 years later, Republican presidential candidate Richard M. Nixon telephoned his closest aide and future chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and ordered him to get intermediaries to persuade South Vietnamese President Nguyen Van Thieu to refuse to participate in the Paris peace talks to end the Vietnam War. In 1977, Nixon denied he had any knowledge of contact with the Thieu government. But in 2007, the Nixon Presidential Library opened the Haldeman notes to researchers and historian John A. Farrell discovered the note in 2016. So by this point in the Vietnam War, about 30,000 American soldiers had been killed. Um, that number would just about double uh, by the time the war ended. So thanks, Dick. <laughs> Well, that's our historical context. Um, we are going to take a little break, uh, and then when we get back, we're going to talk about all the great comics that came out in October 1968 right here on Marvel by the Month. Content. Get your fresh, hot, bonus content. I'll uh, take some of that content, <laughs> mister. Where can I get it? You can get it at patreon.com slash marvel by the month what do i get for that well first of all you got to give just four dollars per month and you get access to our subscriber only patreon podcast feed that includes extended versions of our episodes including this very episode that you're listening to right now wow what else well, subscribers also get access to our omnibus companion episodes where we talk about all of the other issues that Marvel released each month. And best of all, you don't have to hear these promos on the subscriber feed. Uh, that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it's uh, more than an hour of content you can't hear anywhere else. Plus, you're first to know about upcoming announcements and events. So sign up at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and instantly get access to all of our past, present, and future subscriber-exclusive content. Hey kids, do you like those Guardians of the Galaxy? Uh, who doesn't love Gamora, Drax, Star-Lord, Groot, and of course, Rocket? 
you're sort of in luck because this is the month that the Guardians of the Galaxy debuted in Marvel Comics, but they bear almost no resemblance to the MCU lineup. Yeah. Had you read the first appearance of the Guardians before this? I had. Yeah, I have. Okay. I um, my brother and I got obsessed with the Guardians in the in the probably late 80s, early 90s. And so we sort of backtracked the history. And even then, <laughs> they look nothing like the team that is in the MCU. So yeah. Guardians is a is a very um, sort of rot- rotating roster of characters. And uh, and yeah, you don't get to Rocket Raccoon for quite a while. Yeah, not till Bill, Bill Mantlo shows up on the scene. So yeah, so it's, um this is, I was surprised actually to find that anybody from the movie uh, version of Guardians of the Galaxy was involved in this version of the team. And there yeah. is one character. Sort of, but in remarkable detail, given that. Yeah. 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 It's real weird. Yep. Yeah, really, there's two characters if you consider the weapon a character. But yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, this is this all takes place in Marvel Superheroes number 18, Written by Arnold Drake, art by Gene Colan and Mickey DeMeo, who is Mike Esposito, uh, doing the inking. The story takes place in the year 3007. Okay, well, that's a leap. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're first introduced to Charlie 27, a Jovian whose ancestors space immigrated from Earth five generations ago. I love that he, he specifies that they space immigrated. I like I guess. space hyphen anything. So space immigrated is hilarious to me. <laughs> yes. Uh, especially when it's not necessary, like space apron or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, he returns to Jupiter from a six month tour of duty to discover the Badoon have conquered the planet. I like yeah. to say Badoon. It's Badoon. Like, yeah, it's more of a British pronunciation. I, you might say Badoon, but I say Badoon. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. is really the only tie to the mainstream Marvel Universe. It's like we see we saw the Badoon in what, like one issue of a Silver Surfer comic. But like none of these characters who show up here, nothing in here. I mean, it's a thousand years after, you know, all the stuff we've been reading. Um, but this is like the one thing that is like, no, this is still in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah, but there's no suggestion that they're in a world where there have ever been superheroes. There's no particular indication that, like, it's not like anybody's like, boy, I wish the Avengers were around to save us from these Badoon. Like, it's <laughs> right. not yeah. a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a legion of superheroes thing where you're like, there is some trace of the past. So we can only assume that every superhero on Earth did not do any good, make a change, have a statue made. A, a space university named after them. They're just all gone. Yep. Uh, no, this reads like a like a science fiction pitch that got rejected from somebody's short story anthology, and so it landed here. <laughs> yep, yep. It's just straight pulp sci-fi. Very yeah. much so. Uh, it probably, I would guess, knowing Stan was just dusted off from some you know old anthology and put new names. Well, Arnold Drake was mostly a science fiction writer, so I'm sure it's from his drawer. Oh, yeah, right? true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's Drake. Just, I mean, he's kind of given complete license to just tell whatever story he wants to tell. Because, like I said, has almost no connection to the Marvel universe. Um, and I also got to say, like, I, I think I mentioned this in the last episode. Like, I I love Gene Colan's art. Depending on the inker, I I found a lot of this to be very 
like muddy and confusing. And I, I don't know, I don't know if it was a deadline thing or what, but I, I don't know that Esposito did him a ton of favors um, with his. I have his a brush hypothesis on about this, which is mm-hmm. that I loved in Colin's art when he is drawing specific people and things. And this issue was a ton of, I don't know, make up a throne room. I don't know, make up a planet. I don't yeah. know, make up a city. Like there's no reference for the things he's drawing. And it is just a big old mess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm so fond of his work, but this is, it is not, it is yeah. not good. Oh no. Let, I mean, let him, let him draw, you know, Daredevil at night. Let him draw Dracula. Let him, yeah. you know, like these things are, are, prime gene colon but, yeah, um, yeah draw new york city draw somebody falling in love on a dark street in new york city i yeah. want that yeah but don't draw some alien throne room it's a mess yeah, yeah big he, old mess. It, it's probably <laughs> yeah a combination of the two he's just not he's not the kirby who's gonna just come up with some far-fetched concept that no one can imagine yeah uh that's it oh can you imagine if kirby had drawn this thing yeah it would it would be it would have been good (laughs) (laughs) even if vince coletta inked it it would have been good Uh, (laughs) um yeah so it it does feel that way uh so this so the story is we have the space immigrated jovian um or he's an an- his ancestor's space immigrated, so he's right. five generations Jovian. Yeah. Uh, Charlie twenty seven. He fights his way to a teleport station, and radio jumps blindly to Pluto, which has also been overrun by Badoon. Yeah. Uh, so apparently they just took over the entire solar system in one big move. In one yeah. fell swoop. Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, how you invade a solar system if you're going to yeah, do it I mean, right. If you're- if you yeah. had to go to town, go to Lincoln. <laughs> so uh, he's saved by a Pluvian refugee. Uh, I don't. Would would you prefer Martinex or Martinex? I, I like, always said Martinex, but I agree. don't know. Yeah. Okay, Martinex, a man made of crystal. Uh, so we have this Pluvian Martinex and a Jovian Charlie Twenty Seven. So right. far. No tracking to Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, we learned that the slur is rockheads. Is that right? I believe so. Yep. He yeah. even invented some future slurs, which, <laughs> boy, Just, that's never gets old. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and and basically, these guys are also, we should mention, like, they're representative of their planet's races, right? So you've got Charlie 27 is this, like, really stout, wide fellow who's, you know, he, he's engineered to survive Jupiter's you know, ex- heavy gravity and Martin X is or Martin X, whatever, however we're saying it. Um, he's a uh, like, because, you know, Pluto is so far at the, at the outer reaches of the solar system um, and isn't even a planet anymore. Come on. 3007. <laughs> um, like, you know, so he's got like a crystalline form that helps him survive the, the temperature extremes. Yeah. We can only assume that Pluto has gained significant mass uh, in the intervening millennia so uh yes. so it's charlie now- 27 by the way is a, is a white guy mm-hmm. uh with a with a high and tight um and uh <laughs> martin x is is a blue crystalline gentleman yes so now uh charlie 27 and martin x teleport to earth uh where a 1000 year old earth man named vance astro is being brought before Drang, the supreme commander of the eastern sector of the Badoon Empire. I like that they said he was of the eastern sector because, you know, cardinal directions make a lot of sense in space. In solar system, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Colonization. Um, yeah. 
Although I, I do have to mention, I think the original pitch for this, I was reading something, a little something about it. Originally, um, this was supposed to be like like a, a Western nation versus Eastern nation story. And so it, and I guess when Arnold Drake got a hold of it, it became a, you know, a, a galactic, you know, world spanning story. But this was supposed to be like future America versus future Soviets. Um, Mega City so, one. Yeah. Yeah, basically. So I think this is why, you know, the, the like Eastern arm of the. Uh, of the Badoon Empire, I think that's a legacy of that treatment. Oh, Eastern Eastern is doing more work there than it yeah. necessarily does <laughs> to our modern ears. Exactly. Um, so Astro uh, Vance Astro to you was launched from Earth <laughs> in suspended animation in the far future of 1988 to explore a distant star system. Uh, he got uh, put on ice, like literally in a bunch literally of ice cubes, ice. Uh, <laughs> like. <laughs> I love that he wasn't just frozen in a fluid. He, there's ice cubes he's got to lay in. Uh, and he's talking as he's laying in that before, you know. Anyway, so um, so he's put it in suspended animation in 1988. So he's already out there. Uh, when he landed and awoke, there were already humans there to greet him because physics moved on while he was in stasis so <laughs> bad news your tech is old yeah um, he dumps yeah. his girl before he goes on ice though i feel like that's an important like it's an important moment to me because this is you know we don't read them for this podcast but this is a moment where marvel is still doing all these romance comics mm -hmm. and this is a moment where this guy is just like straight out of one of the jerks in a romance comment <laughs> yeah. comic who's just like sorry doll wasn't gonna work anyway go into space now yep Go a thousand years into the future. And I suppose in this timeline, yeah, yeah, 1990 is when they figure out how to um, move people through space much more quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, they do say it's relatively soon. So he, it was just like a, a wasted breakup. And I mean, apparently it's oddly weird that he's frozen because of the way he's, it's his, you know, breakup is sort of, refridging himself but um, she did better yeah she she, she, she definitely off. i mean she she almost would have had to right, right. <laughs> uh so uh <laughs> back in 3007 astro frees himself and his companion from the distant planet that he landed on um he pretends to be willing to execute his companion to prove his loyalty to the vadoon um but when he fires his companion's own bow at him, the blue-skinned alien controls the arrow with a whistle and uses it to kill all of the Badoon. Yep. It's Yondu! Hooray! <laughs> so now we have an actual person from Guardians of the Galaxy who sort of was in the team in the movies uh, it, by the second movie. So yeah. there you go. It's a Guardian of the Galaxy, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, and it's like it is kind of crazy that I, I mean, there's uh, there's that scene in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two where Yondu, you know, controls the arrow with a whistle and you know takes out all the Ravagers, um, and like it, it is, it basically comes straight out of this first appearance here. Like that's the first thing he does when we see him. Um, he is blue and he has a mohawk and yep. tiny shorts, and it is. The amount of specificity in that character where everything else just feels, I say made up like the rest of it's not, <laughs> but it just feels so unconnected to yeah. anything else. Um, 
I don't know. I keep thinking of when you guys had uh, Tom Brevoort on uh, and we're talking about how Marvel just keeps, just keeps at the content yeah. until it lands somewhere. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we get the guardians here. We don't get the guardians for another 20 years or so. We see them mm-hmm. again. It's still not particularly good. They go away for another decade. They come yep. back in the nineties. Um, and eventually we get Yondu in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly. I, I did not expect that at all. I it didn't took know. A, yeah. a, a lot of bites at this particular Apple. I mean, <laughs> I guess the sales on this issue were decent from what the research I was doing, but either I I, I guess like Marvel was limited with the number of titles they could publish at this point. So maybe they, there wasn't room to do, you know, an ongoing series. Um, But like the guardians of the galaxy, this version of the guardians of the galaxy don't reappear for another six years. Um, Yeah. And they just kind of like show up out of nowhere. And there's a lot, I mean, I can't, I didn't look up the number of cancels cancellations of the series but i think katie just did on uh most of them so mm. <laughs> I, yeah. but i recall my brother and i saying there was like six or seven you know it was volume seven of of guardians getting kicked off again when we were um you know really getting into it yeah uh, and it, I, it might be less than that but it it feels like one of those comics that just can't can't keep a run yeah yeah Comics monger pitch. The current run of Guardians is by Al Ewing, who is one of my favorites, and it's utterly brilliant. Nice. I I need to catch up on that. I've been so buried <laughs> where, where, in in <laughs> 1960s. Where can someone, <laughs> someone purchase local neighborhood that? comic shop? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so how does this thing how does this thing wrap up, Rob? So uh, Vance Astro and Yondu run into Charlie Twenty Seven and Martin X at the teleport. Uh, after which is like the airport you see tele dash tel- oh i get it a tele so, dash um yeah. after mistaking each other for badoon allies they team up and fight through the badoon they leap to new new york in futurama uh no in search <laughs> of the last remaining free colony but it has been completely destroyed but the newly formed guardians of the galaxy resolve to never give up and then they start singing earth shall overcome yeah <laughs> oh god that's not, just yeah not not the last tone deaf thing that we'll read this week but um it was up there <laughs> yeah yeah it's a uh, it's pretty painful there was a struggle song they sang in my time it's still good if you alter it a bit try it with me <laughs> <laughs> I just think Vance Astro probably didn't know that song. That's just my guess. But, um... <laughs> Vance Astro was a narc. Yeah, is he? He's also like blonde, blue eyed, or something. Too, I, you know? I mean, I, yeah, and One white assumes. is yeah, white. I mean, it's the worst. I, yeah, white is me. <laughs> Like I was uh, mentioning uh, just a little bit ago, Stan has been spending a lot of his time on college campuses lately, um, giving interviews, spreading the gospel of Marvel Comics and, of course, of Stan Lee. Um, We have also mentioned the rise of student protests several times in our historical context uh, for the era. So it was sort of inevitable that a story like this would be written. Um, And uh, that story is called Crisis on the Campus. 
Um, it's written by Stan Lee, art by John Romita and Jim Rooney. Um, so uh, the story opens with the Kingpin uh, learning about a newly discovered petrified clay tablet. Um, his lackeys try to explain to him why it's so valuable, but all he really cares about is the fact that it is valuable, that that people have you know died and, and tried to kill each other to get this thing. He's like, well, then I want it. So, he, you know, he, he declares that this is the next thing he wants to set his sights on. Um, then he whips off his robe and he beats up a half dozen of his own goons uh, <laughs> without breaking a sweat. Um, just to remind us all of what a tough guy he is. And that it's all muscle. Yes. That's like a requirement. Anytime the kingpin appears, he needs to remind you he's very defensive about he shouldn't be defensive about, you know, all bodies are beautiful. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, kingpin really wants to make sure you understand he's a muscly guy. It doesn't help that Spider-Man calls him tubby all the time. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, Spider-Man is um he's a meanie. Yeah. Uh so uh the this this petrified stone tablet um conveniently enough is on display at Empire State University, um which is Peter's alma mater. Um and then uh, also a student at the school is uh Joe Robertson's son Randy, uh, who I think we were just introduced to in the previous issue. Um and uh, one of the first things we learn about Randy is that he is falling in with some student leaders who are planning a protest over the safest non-issue Stan could come up with. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> Can you try to explain what what is the issue that that the students are, are so head up about? The hall that's exhibiting the clay tablet um, was is supposed to be turned into low income student housing but it's instead being turned into a private dorm for visiting alumni. So I want to say there's a specific reference here. Okay. Um, so, so this is very much, it's not just referencing student protest. It's mm. referencing the Columbia university occupation, which was in April of 1968. Okay. And in 1968 for a week in April, um, a bunch of, campus buildings were occupied by protesters and by two groups of protesters. One was the African-American student organization. And one was, uh, I think the, uh, the students for a democratic society, the STS. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the two major issues there was that the campus was building a gym in a primarily black neighborhood and the rumor was that that gym was going to be segregated. Whoa. And so I do feel like the specific, this building is going to be a dorm for visiting alumni instead of low-income housing is a pretty specific gesture at fancy white kids' gym in the black neighborhood. <laughs> yep. So that's fascinating that's because awesome. I thought this was basically like Stan saying, it's like, we can't have the protest be about racism we can't have the protests be about the war let's just say they want affordable housing for students right uh, yeah. no i do think it's a more specific reference than that wow okay and we do um, know yeah we have covered i think we did cover that that occupation at columbia and there was mm-hmm. one um it was there was one before there's that, one at that howard was, i think yeah yeah howard like a couple weeks earlier yeah so they were the first instances of actually occupying um mm-hmm. a, a building in a protest like this so uh so stands you know hep yeah 
No, I do, I do <laughs> think that it's he's right right on top of it, and it is this plot is an occupation plot. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yeah, as well. And he has like the student leaders that that Peter's interacting with. Uh, they're all black characters, which like I felt funny about that when I was reading this, but now in light of the Columbia thing, if like one of the two occupying groups, there was like a black students organization like that does maybe feel like more of a specific reference. But to my eyes, as I was looking through this, it's like, Oh, Stan, don't, don't say the black kids are causing problems on the campus. (laughs) Like, like, come on, man. (laughs) I didn't quite read it as that, but it is interesting. Peter's reactions are such a, privileged point of view that uh <laughs> that it that this is a good like if someone wants to read a book and get a perspective of what a sort of progressive white kid in new york um thinks and see how not progressive that is um mm-hmm. and how entitled it is there there's a lot of that in here it's just laced right through but it's not it's supposed to come across as him being um you know more of a taking an equal look at things and yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's it is not that at all. Yeah. So he so he has uh, Peter has a, a moment of of meeting Randy and, and meeting uh, the, the leaders of the student protest, which hasn't happened yet, but it's in the works. Well, and then we cut to the Daily Bugle where Jonah's having a tantrum because that's <laughs> you know, that's Jonah. Um, and, you know, Robbie Robertson, he's he's like half trying to calm him down. But he also he's like his his attention's diverted. He knows his something's going on with his son and he, you know, he's a family man. He wants to be there for his kid. And then we have, uh, so, uh, Peter and Gwen pay a visit to, uh, aunt may. And there, this scene, it's, it's a very short scene, but there's so much sweetness, uh, in this scene. And it's like, it's really obvious. Like Peter and Gwen are crazy for each other. They're kind of like dancing around the issue of like, maybe we'll get married. Um, and it's all really hard to read when you know what happens to Gwen just like a few years from now. Um, it's just like, like now I understand why people are so upset, you know, when that happens. I mean, when we spoke to Mike Allred, he said this, this made him or Gwen, the story of Gwen that happens later. Yeah. Um, and his sort of crush on Gwen made him stop reading comics for years yeah. As a result of that. And he had to be sort of lured back in later um, yeah. because he had it, it turned him off of comics. Yeah. Um, you know, Aunt May is so happy to to see them and then they leave. And then we we find out that Aunt May is hiding her latest illness from them. <laughs> um, so I, I assume this is where Peter gets his gaslighting from. <laughs> like, yep. Learned it like, from the best. Yeah. It's like <laughs> our hiding things from each other is a family value. Yes. Uh, then, oh, yeah. OK, so we we head back to ESU. Uh, the big protest has happened um, and uh, Randy Robertson is right in the middle of it. Peter you know, runs into him again. Um, and, you know, because Peter Parker is the world's youngest 50 year old man, uh, he refuses to get involved until he learns what the dean has to say. <laughs> There's two sides to every story. He really does not come off looking good here. Like, the 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 top middle panel on page 10 where he is just like angry white man in the face of these two not angry black leaders yes yeah um and he is just just hates being told what to do yeah uh it's (laughs) it's something 
It is really something. And in the background, there's there's an incredulous white girl uh, like looking at him like, what is wrong with you? Just <laughs> talking, <laughs> man. Yeah. Just... <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the protest escalates. They they storm the dorm. Um, and then this is where uh, the kingpin decides it's time to make his move. Um, this is a, a good fortuitous thing for the kingpin. So uh, Kingpin shows up with his goons. Um, I, my panel of the month uh, is on page 13. It's the middle panel. Um, so the fourth panel on the page. Um, it, it's when uh, the Kingpin and his goons arrive. And one of his goons is just kind of like taking it all in. He says, so this is what a college looks like. Big deal. <laughs> it's like, that's a good line, Stan. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, uh, so uh, they uh, Kingpin and and his goons um, storm the hall, um, and uh, they they start heading for the uh, stone tablet. So Peter has chosen not to get involved, but Spider Man, of course, does not have that choice because now the Kingpin's here, um, and this is a much less ambiguous uh, moral dilemma for him. Uh, so <laughs> Spidey, uh, he shows up, he starts brawling with the Kingpin. Um, and with a little bit of help from Randy, um, uh, Spidey takes the kingpin down and Randy almost gets himself killed uh, in the middle of this. But then as Spidey goes to help Randy up, uh, the kingpin fires his disintegrator cane and buries them under the rubble of a wall. Kingpin grabs the tablet. He escapes. Spidey managed to shield Randy um, with his body, so he's okay. Uh, but Randy's arrested when the cops arrive. Um, also, oh, I skipped over a bit where, like, as the protest is happening, I think this is on page, oh yeah, page 12. Uh, there's at least one cop uh, who is, he's just totally ready to pull a gun on college students. Um, <laughs> yeah, he has like to be he, talked down by another cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Peter. Like, and, and yeah, like Peter Parker's there too. And Kent State is not that far away, so... Um, well, so I actually I had to look it up and it's too late, but there was a major Mexican student massacre this yes. month yeah, uh, yeah. in October. Right before the Olympics, right? Right. So when this came out, mm-hmm. the news of the of the Mexican massacre was probably just coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is intense. And there was a there was a story of oh boy, I, I can't remember what maybe within the last six months there was um there's a protest of black students at a historically black college that cops fired into the crowd and killed a few of the students there, um, which happened long before Kent state um, and isn't nearly as well remembered uh, to make it more accurate. Of course, you know, we're wrapping up with the protesters just being arrested. <laughs> like yeah. uh, there's, that's not even a question. And, and there's at least Spider-Man, you know, wondering why that's the case. Um, they're being blamed for, you know, the explosions and whatever else the Kingpin has done. Right. And uh, even with people giving them, you know, eyewitness accounts, they're just taking the taking the black kids in. Yep. That's standard operating procedure. Yep. Well, and also to me, it makes those those middle panels on page eight, the the Robbie Robertson at the bugle just worrying about his kid yeah. and sort of touching the baby picture of his kid. I mean, those those three panels are so poignant to me yeah. of the yes. father worrying about he's what he says is I just wish I knew what was bugging Randy, but there's this sense of like, my black son is in some kind of trouble at college. Yes. Yeah. And as soon as Joe hears that there's 
a riot going on at the school. Like he wastes no time. Like he's, he's got his jacket on, he's out the door. Um, and he's right on the scene as the kids are being let out by the cops. And, you know, he's, he's promising they're going to have the best legal aid available. And he's like, I know you did what you thought was right, son. I'll be behind you all the way because I mean, Joe Robertson is the conscience of the Marvel universe. Um, really, um, yeah, it just drives the point home that, you know, this is a black father who's very concerned about what's going to happen to his black son in police custody. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and to Stan's credit, it's it seems to be there like it reads yeah. to us mm-hmm. now as that, uh, even though we have Peter Parker being the now well, let's look at both sides of the story here. Um, yeah. You know, we so he is sort of rounding the perspectives in this story, which is. Yeah. Um, which is good. I mean, I think there it could be better, and it would be great to have Peter as a better example. But uh, eh, here we are. Uh, Joe Robertson, you know, he, he's on the scene. He's going to help his his son out and his friends. Uh, and Spidey, basically, the only thing he can do at this point is head out after the kingpin. So that's what he's going to go do. Um, in the very next issue, there's your cliffhanger. Um, and that's going to be the most problematic thing we talk about this episode, right? Yep. Probably. No, nothing, nothing worse than that certainly uh, will come up. Uh, But just in case, let's take a a, a break. Um, And uh, if we need to steal ourselves for what's coming up, uh, we can do that. Um, We'll be right back here on Marvel by the Month. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Let's talk about Avengers number 59. Um, we all know there's a there's a lot of reasons to dislike Henry Pym. He's bad at superheroing. He started dating a young girl immediately after her father died because of his inaction. Then he genetically experimented on her. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. He'll give us so many more reasons not to like him as the years go by. Um, and not to mention, if you've heard our early episodes of working through Ant-Man stories in general, we were over Henry Pym before he got giant. Uh, so this uh, is just another one of the reasons, and it's a big one. And this is a story called The Name is Yellow Jacket. Avengers number 59, uh, written by Roy Thomas, art by John Buscema and George Klein. Uh, the story opens with the debut of a new superhero uh, named Yellow Jacket. If you're the sort of person who listens to a Marvel Comics podcast, which you probably are, you know the twist of this story. Uh, but we're going to try and pretend that we don't so that we can see it through the eyes of someone reading this for the first time in October of 1968. Anyway, Yellow Jacket encounters some fur thieves and deals with them in an extremely brutal fashion, but he immediately annoys the police by refusing to testify against them when they go to trial. He says, I play cops and robbers. Let somebody else play judge and jury. Then we see that J. Jonah Jameson thinks Yellow Jacket is the best thing ever, which is a good bellwether to tell you that he, uh, you know, all you need to know that Yellow Jacket is a good guy or a bad guy is whether J. Jonah Jameson thinks he's great. Yeah. So, yeah. Give a guy like that half a chance and he'll mop up this town with a bum like Spider-Man. <laughs> he reads people wrong out of the gate every yes. time. That's what but he, he does. does it perfectly. <laughs> it reminds me of someone we used to work with. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> um, 
At Avengers HQ, all of the Avengers show up for a meeting except Hank Pym, and no one knows where he is. As the Avengers are talking about what's going on in their lives, someone sneaks into the mansion and ties up Jarvis. It's Yellow Jacket, and he's there to tell them that Hank Pym isn't coming, because <laughs> I'm the guy that polished him off. <laughs> so, uh, great. Yellow Jacket claims to have ambushed Hank in his lab and shrunk him to the size of a tiny insect, and there was nothing Hank could do to stop it. Uh, the last Yellow Jacket saw of Hank, he was about to be devoured by a spider that he couldn't control because it had too many legs, I guess, because, you know, his, uh, <laughs> his insect controlling powers only go so far. Right. Six legs. Arachnid, yeah. to be yeah. fair, and not an insect. True. Thank you. He doesn't you. have arachnid controlling powers. He's not <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> I mean, wait. So, <laughs> so here we go. Um, yeah. So the Avengers attack Yellow Jacket, but he holds his own. Uh, then he grabs the wasp, uh, knocks her out. He pulls a gun on her, too. He just has a yeah. gun on his costume. Uh, knocks her out with a nerve pinch and flies off with her before they can stop him. So, uh, great guy. He takes her back to his hornet's nest, which is basically a sci-fi tree house. And it's, I have some questions about where this came from, but I can save them till the end. You, whatever, whenever you want. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's a weird, um, just it's it's just it's an odd treehouse. Let's say yeah. the wasp tries to slap him and he grabs her hand. His first instinct is to hit her. Then he's overpowered with an urge to kiss her. And it goes on for a while. And he uses all sorts of creepy, rapey language. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, suddenly he snaps out of it and tells Wasp he doesn't need her as a hostage anymore. So he's letting her go. And and this is where it gets real gross. And then Wasp thinks, but somehow now I don't want him to. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Man everything so the but that's got to be the last problematic thing that happens in this issue right <laughs> i want it to be uh so the avengers track wasps homing device to catch up with her and yellow jacket as they're leaving city hall and the black panther attacks but wasp tells them to stand down and then she goes to yellow jacket's side to make sure he's okay the avengers are dumbfounded and hawkeye tells her to give him one good reason why we shouldn't total this creep called Yellow Jacket. And Wasp responds, I'll give you the best reason in the world, Hawkeye. I'm going to marry him. That's that's it. That's the story. That's, that, is, that is not the best reason in the world. That is the worst reason in the world. So, you know, uh, one thing that has always... Um, bugged me and disappointed me a little bit about this show is that, you know, we really haven't been super successful at getting a lot of female guests on. Um, <laughs> and, uh, now I'm kind of realizing maybe why that is. It's like we, you know, Katie's good enough to take two hours out of her Wednesday evening. Um, and then we have her read this. Um, so <laughs> Katie, what, what, how did this hit you? I want to say, I, you know, I've read this issue before. Yeah. I was not, I was not, um, it's infuriating. It's an infuriating issue. Yeah. Um, but I also want to say this time around, starting on about page 16, I really want to look at it um, 
panel by panel looking at Janet because I feel like she's extraordinarily drunk. Okay. Um, so we, she gets grabbed from behind and it's a full body picture of her. It is not particularly sexy. She looks frightened, right? Mm -hmm. Um, she then faints and in her fainting pose, she's definitely sexy, right? Like we get sort of highlight on the boobs and the hips and she's fainting into his arms and then she's carried away. Um, then we see, okay, guys, I like the treehouse. The treehouse is great. Um, <laughs> it's like a submarine and half submarine, half helicopter that just landed in a tree. Um, and it looks like something from Nick uh, Steranko's yeah, Agents it's, of it's, S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, it's, it's, it's organic. Pretty great. And, yeah, it's you know there's beanbags in there for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then we have her and she's in the foreground and She's uh, sort of colored blue because she's in darkness and her dialogue is great. Nothing about you impresses me, mister. Least of all, now that I think about it, your wide-eyed tale about Hank. Um, and she's angry. And then he grabs her and she is drawn as legitimately scared. She's frightened. Yeah. She is like, he is being rapey and awful. And she is drawn as getting that, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's right in her face. And then he suddenly goes from being angry to being swoony and he kisses her and she is alarmed. Yeah. yeah. Like eyes open, getting eyes kissed. open, uh, being grabbed by the head and neck and being kissed and being frightened. Um, and she says, no, stop. Let me go. You murdering. And this is, this is upsetting. Like this is genuinely shitty. Yeah. 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 Um, and then we get to her moment after. Um, somehow now I don't want him to after right. the kiss. And this is, I feel like we are being led to read it as, well, that was some kiss, right? And the 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 the, the plot, even without later retcons, as it's resolved in the next yeah. issue. Can I spoil it? Is should I Yeah, I think I think it's important to say it. So th there's there's two things that change our reading of this. The first thing happens next issue, and then the second one we'll talk about in a little bit. But right. Yeah. So so as it's as it's resolved, next issue is this is where she realizes that it's Hank. Yeah. Um, and it's the kiss that makes her realize that it's Hank. It's having him in her in his arms that makes him realize when he decides he needs to kiss her that he something breaks through for him and he realizes that he wants to kiss her. And then when she's being kissed, she realizes. That right. Because, because he has had a like a, a mental collapse and he he he's disassociated himself from his Hank Pym persona. And he, he thinks Hank Pym is a different person at this point. But right. this is the, the first threads where he's starting to recover. Right. Um, and then we find them at city hall. She's now defensive. Like, I feel like her posture in front of him in front of city hall is, looks like she is being protective, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and then again, when we see her next at the bottom of that page, uh, Chala is jumping, is, is going to throw him and she says, no, don't. And it's because, and then our last panel, um, is because I'm going to marry him. Right. And, as it reads here, as it reads without the next issue, mm -hmm. it's infuriating. Yeah. But it's also genuinely, I feel like if we read her body language through the panels as how we're supposed to be reading this story, it is a genuinely curious, I don't feel like she's drawn as ever... Like she is assaulted and then she is 
has a change of heart. And I feel like the assault reads as scary enough that the change of heart is a mystery, not a, uh, it's not, it's not played for cute. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's played for weird, but it's not played for cute. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's at least something for her character. Like, uh, it's not it's not so shallow or but i think you hit on the when you started the these panels when she says she doesn't believe the story about hank from him mm-hmm. that's like the only clue we have that mm-hmm. that hank that there's something totally different than what he's described so yeah it plants that it plants something that it could be him um yeah, I, I mean, I have no way to to think about this exactly from that perspective because I've lived my like the I you know my whole life I, I've known all of these things about him, so about which characters he's been and what his mental states have been. So I I started further down the line, so this was already you know spoiled before I got to it. Right. Um. I mean, yeah, there's there's no issue where Hank appears where Hank is not kind of terrible. And this yeah. one is definitely included. Um, yeah. It doesn't read as is as, as like traditionally exploitative. And by that, I mean, you know, this isn't Wonder Woman getting tied to a chair in 1940. You know? Yeah, exactly. But y- you're you're left to I mean, that last panel where it's just a, a close up on Janet's face looking back over her shoulder. I'm going to marry him. You know, yeah. with you know the dynamic lines coming off of her head, um, I mean that's the big cliffhanger of the issue. So it, it, it's not like it's not exploitative in like a a sexual way, but it is sort of like I mean this character is being used as a prop to like what could she possibly be thinking? You know, it, yeah. it's like yeah. we, we we went through the last few pages, which are super gross, you know, just to get to this point so that we can have a cliffhanger for the next issue. Yeah. And also I think the other thing that makes us a little challenging is more than a little challenging is that especially when Stan was writing the book, Jana Van Dyne has always been played as this, you know, uh, this like hyper sexed airhead, you know, who every time a new male superhero walks into the room, she's all over him. So with that history also, it feels yep. like she just couldn't wait. It's like he might have murdered her fiance, but she just couldn't wait to make out with this dude. And it's like, that's another thing that's just like, ah, I, but I, but yeah. I think with Katie, with your read, it does feel, that's what I was trying to say. It feels mm. like it's not undercutting the, I mean, the limited agency that this character has uh, it, because it seems so weird because of the way that, the her expressions are carefully drawn like you you see it more as uh odd than forced or than a flaw in her character necessarily like there's something more to it so you can you can read that um in her body language and in her expressions uh, and even though she is a character that has not been portrayed necessarily with a uh, any agency um so that was a that was an interesting read because I think I would have taken it more as oh, it's just gross. Like I just I got so overwhelmed by how gross it was that it's I, really gross. I, I, mean, yeah. I, I don't want to I don't want to diminish that it's really gross, but I think that it's worth being curious about it, even even while it's being really gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Um, and I do just, I, I actually really love the intensity of how she's drawn in these pages. Like the focus really is on her yeah, um, and her sort of perceptions and responses. And I, I appreciate that. It's such a miracle that Janet Van Dyne is the character she is now, like in The Unstoppable Wasp. And I like, love that like, version of her. Yeah, I, think, I love it yeah. too. I think it's so, I just, I'm glad that they recovered her character and and in a way that felt natural to the character too. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. now she has so much agency. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, I love that about, the current trend of Marvel comics, you know, the, there's so much to me fixed. And I do feel like that version of her is really respectful of this version of her Mm -hmm. as well. I feel like there is a lot of room for, this is a character who has been through an intimate relationship with a dangerous and violent and unstable romantic partner. Yeah. Um, And I, I, I think that it's one of the nice things about, that about the Joe Casey 2006 retcon of this is yeah, I, I still don't know that she's right to play <laughs> along and marry Hank after he has this massive meltdown. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that sort of annoys me in that in that read of it is that so we have here in this issue on page six. Um, Janet's stress when everybody, all the Avengers sort of go into their heads and have their own stresses. Janet's stress is that she wants Hank to take her out for coffee and he doesn't um, because he's going to be in the lab all night. And in Joe Casey's version, that dialogue gets played out a little longer and is um, her being frustrated that he'll never marry her. Um, Uh, And him then beating himself up as I really want to marry Janet, but I can't because there are so many things in this world to be curious about mm-hmm. and then that tension in him is portrayed as one of the reasons for the mental collapse mm-hmm. um and so of course that story then resolves in them getting married and her wink at the end actually her wink at the end in the 60s story is it doesn't matter which one of us you married it's still legal yeah yep. <laughs> which is you i i our, our our listeners cannot see me hiding my head in my pants <laughs> but i i it's it's gross yeah right? yeah i think but our listeners are probably there at this point like, <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> like um, going back to what you were saying about like comparing future versions of janet to this version of janet i think one of the reasons that this i had not read this in in quite some time um but when i came into reading marvel comics and specifically avengers comics like i came in during the roger stern run on the avengers and so this was a time when the wasp was she was the leader of the avengers like she she had really come into her own she was the focal point of the team she i that was my first impression of that character and so like going back and seeing the real rough version of the character early on where she's just like oh man you know yeah everywhere she goes um and then you know getting to this point it's just like wow i mean it took going back to you know what we were just saying about tom brevoort saying it's like sometimes you gotta take 20 swings at a character before you get it right it's like i think that this this counts um toward that i do but uh, yeah to the point that we were talking about though it it all in Janet Van Dyne's case forms the character we find later. Like they, mm-hmm. they yeah. make that continuity. Uh, so that is, 
Uh, and that happens a lot in the Marvel universe. They, they do, they, you, you don't dismiss, uh, things that have happened to a character in the past. You build on it. Yeah. We don't need to read her as those things never happened because she was tough and put together the whole time. Right. We can read it as she made bad romantic decisions and she learned from them. Yeah. Yeah. And she survived and she is a stronger and smarter person as a result. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That said, this issue is still really gross. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I feel Um, like that was the best lemonade we could make out of that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Well, we did it, folks. Um, We we made it to the end uh, of another episode. Uh, Last thing we have to do is uh, give some recommendations for things that uh, our listeners would want to read. Really, literally anything except this issue of Avengers. Um, uh, and I will, I'll go first. Um, Katie, I'm sorry, I'm not going to recommend a thing that can be purchased in your store. Um, uh, but I, I have to spread the word about these things. I just discovered them. Um, the, it's the Immortal Hulk Omnibus. Uh, there's three volumes. The third volume just came out. Um, they are the UK only soft cover collections of Immortal Hulk that are published by Panini um, in uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, each one has about like 15 issues of the series, or I think it works out to three of the skinny trades. Um, and they're like 35 bucks each. Uh, it's just like, it's this giant slab of content. Um, uh, and, and it's such a good series. Um, it's basically a Lovecraftian body horror take on the Hulk. Um, <laughs> And I, I just I wish Marvel would collect all of their series like this in this format um, and sell them through American distributors so that I could purchase them at Books with Pictures, um, because like each volume is substantial, but it's not wallet crushing. Um, and uh, yeah, I just love it. Um, also, uh, the Hulk, I, it occurred to me as I was reading these that you know, everyone kind of writes the Hulk off as being like this one dimensional character. And yet there are like multiple extended runs on this character, um, that are as good as anything Marvel ever published. So, um, and yet I, I defy you to name five great Iron Man stories. (laughs) (laughs) And again, this is, uh, Al Ewing who we were uh, talking about at the top of the episode on guardians as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's, Uh, he's a wonder. He's so good. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it, it, I, I don't even know how to express this bizarre take on Immortal Hulk, but I've enjoyed yeah. every piece of like the the exploration of of what gamma radiation and has done to everyone who's been touched by it, and uh, and, and it brings how, in it brings in Rob's favorite Canadians. Yes, uh, man. Anytime anybody from Alpha Flight shows up, I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. It, and I do love Puck as he goes through these stories and tries to help uh, and gamma flight. Oh, man. So anyway, <laughs> uh, mine is a totally different uh, recommendation this this time. And I do uh, it. It is available at Books with Pictures. Uh, this is called The Night Witches. It's by Garth Ennis and Russ Brown. And it, it's a I'll do, I'll give you part of the synopsis they actually have for it. But um it's as the German army smashes deep into the Soviet Union and the defenders of the motherland retreat in disarray, a new squadron arrives at a Russian forward airbase. Like all night bomber units, they will risk fiery death flying obsolete biplanes against the invader. But unlike the rest, these pilots and navigators are women. 
and the lethal skies above the Eastern Front, they will become a legend known to friend and foe alike as the Night Witches. Uh, and it's uh, it's based on a lot of historical accounts. It's very dramatized as well, but um, so it sort of gives one history uh, for one character that, but it's based on essays and and historical accounts from many other characters through through history. So the, it gave me laughter and tears, and and it's uh, it's just from World War the Soviet Army. Um, these pilots from World War II to the Korean War and um, and everything they experienced both within their own party and the changing Soviet um, you know landscape as they fight through and lose millions of people in World War II and then come out um, and how that changes them and then Stalin's reign and Stalin's rise to power and Stalin becoming as fascist as anybody they fought. And um, it's a, it's very interesting. It just touches on so much, but in this very human story and uh, it's excellent. Nice. Katie, do you have a recommendation for our audience? So I, I recommend comic books all day long and I'm actually going <laughs> to recommend prose to your audience. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's, it's definitely on theme. Uh, so the most recent thing I finished reading is a novel called The Nobody People. Um, and it's by Bob Prohl, who's actually an old friend of mine from like three lifetimes ago. Um, but what it is, is an X-Men story with the numbers filed off. Um, and it is a it is a story about a world where children are showing up with extraordinary abilities in contemporary United States. Um, some of those abilities are very scary. There is, it turns out, a school in secret that takes care of these children. Um, and we come into their lives through the eyes of a um, really flawed um, journalist character um, who has spent his career sort of adrenaline chasing war stories and gets pulled into this um, story of a murderous young mutant um, and also discovers that his daughter is one. Um, it is a stunning sort of reworking of a lot of the bits of X-Men that you read and you think like, really? <laughs> Though it's it definitely pokes at a lot of the places where the mutant metaphor breaks down and sort of reimagines them. Um, it is at no point not informed by the X-Men. Um, like it's barring like Jay and Miles and Douglas. Um, Bob is definitely on the list of people who've read more X-Men than anybody. And you can tell. <laughs> um, but it is this beautiful, compassionate, heart-rending story about these really flawed characters um, there, there are some nice twists to it. It's a world where there are mutants, give or take, we call them resonance in the story. Um, but there are no Avengers. There's no superhero superheroes. Um, and so there are no other people with extraordinary powers. There's just these kids, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a world where, um, there are no superheroes, but there are superhero comic books. Um, and, uh, and our, fa our heroes, of the story are also superhero comic book fans. So there's like that, like, what if you found out? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot of really, really nice touches. It's really smart. 
Um, and if you want to hear more from Bob, he was actually on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men sometime last year. And you can look up that episode, which is really good listening. Awesome. Fantastic. Double recommendation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for this episode um, is a, always a delight to chat with you. Um, what can we plug for you? Before I mean, you people us? should buy comic books. Um, <laughs> you should buy comic books from your local comic book store. And if you don't have a local comic book store, you should buy comic books from me. Um, <laughs> you can do that at bookswithpictures.com, um, which it will link you to our online order forms. Disclosure, they are not smart or clever or high tech in any way. They are Google Forms where you can tell me what you want and then I can write you an email back and tell you if I have it and how much it costs. Um, but it works pretty well for us. And uh, we definitely ship anywhere in the country. Um, I will say we, we will ship anyway in the, anywhere in the world, but international shipping is brutal right now. So yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, and so if you don't have a friendly local comic book shop, um, you should buy comics from me and I will send them to you. <laughs> Sounds good. Well said. I think the form works great. You you always come through with all my bizarre requests. They're eleven thirty p.m. Like here's a random list of things that are on my mind right now. Yep. Well, and I should say there's also a form for personal shopping, which it's it's running about two weeks these days. But mm -hmm. if you write in with I don't know what I want, but I really like Marvel by the month, and these are my favorite Marvel characters, can you send me some books? Um, we can make that happen. And I will say, if I did get that request, I would probably get Douglas Wolk and his back issue selection involved and we would, yes. it would definitely cook you up something good. So uh, yeah, um, there's, that's, that's a 0% chance of disappointment. Yeah. yeah it's, it, it's pretty great. And we definitely made some people's day during the pandemic when I got some lovely sort of my favorite characters are Captain America and the Hulk. And can you send me $50 worth of comic books? You will not be sad at yeah. what I sent you. I, promise. <laughs> I would, I would trust you uh any in any request like uh to especially with the resources that you work with like douglas to to track down uh very very specific and esoteric things and uh and i mean i also get wonderful requests like my 12 year old daughter just came out as gay and she really likes romance graphic novels do you have anything Nice. Um, and uh -huh. yes, the answer is there are lots. And I would love to curate a selection of them for your 12 year old daughter. So yeah, it's pretty fun. Fantastic. Uh, well, as for our stuff, thanks as always to our Patreon subscribers. You, uh, hopefully are enjoying an extended cut of this very episode. Um, there's also full bonus episodes and the omnibus supplementary episodes that cover just about every comic Marvel put out every month. Um, you can subscribe at the fantastic price of $4 a month at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month, uh, Apple podcast reviews or any podcast service that lets you review a podcast. Give us a five-star review, take a screenshot, send it to Marvel by the month at gmail.com. And we will put some stuff in the mail for you. Marvel by the month.com has links to our other social channels, as well as our shop. There will be some new stuff showing up in that shop in the not too distant future. Um, and, uh, why don't you uh, follow us on uh, Instagram at Marvel by the month. Uh, so, you know, when that stuff is going to go live. 
So I think that's it for now. So uh, get yourself a dose or two of that super soldier serum as soon as you're able to. Uh, my name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Mel. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. this matter might not even make it into the uh the patreon <laughs> we've been talking about uh yeah all kinds the of i'm working on and yeah that, that yeah. would be that would be punishing the people who are giving us money <laughs> <sighs>